Good morning. My name is Josh, and I have the privilege of getting to, to preach the word this morning. I've been involved in sports ministry since 2008. Given that it's Super Bowl Sunday, it seems appropriate that we talk about Vince Lombardi for a moment. Later this afternoon, the, the winning team of the Super Bowl will hoist the silver Lombardi trophy over their heads. Right? We've seen it. It's the, the pinnacle trophy with the football on the top. League's greatest award is named after the Hall of Fame football coach, Vince Lombardi, who won five Super Bowls in seven years with the Green Bay Packers. Now, many of us know Vince Lombardi. Some of us know his coaching prowess, but his legacy and expertise did not always precede him. In fact, in 1961, the first season after the Packers lost their first Super Bowl, Lombardi had his 38 professional football players gather at midfield on the practice field. And he opened his speech with one of the most iconic lines in all of sports. Vince Lombardi picked up a football. He held it before the team, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. These were not seven-year-olds playing Pop Warner. These were professional football players who'd been playing all of their lives. Can you imagine sitting there in the huddle that morning? Really? That's a football. That's what we're doing here this morning. That's how we're starting our NFL season. Thought I was drafted by the Green Bay Packers of the National Football League. And this guy is holding up a football telling me what it is. Is this guy for real? Wonder if any of you, you ever think about Jesus like that. Wonder if there are ever times you read your Bible, come to a particular story in the Gospels, or you read a section of what Paul says about Jesus and you think to yourself, is this guy for real? In light of what he says about himself, in response to what he asks his followers to do, after reading what he says will happen in the future, do you ever sit there wondering if there's any way this Jesus is really who he says he is? I know I do. There are times I read of his mercy and grace and I think there's, there's no way. There's other times I read of how simple the offer to come and follow him is, and I think this is too good to be true. And then I read of the cost of discipleship, and I think, who, who is this man? I believe Luke knew that the audience he was writing his gospel to might be asking those very same questions, right? Luke's been giving the account of Jesus, and over the last couple weeks, He's turned from the eyewitness accounts of his birth narrative that we looked at over the Advent Christmas season, and he's now zooming in on the start of his earthly ministry. And I think we, we should look at this transition that happened in chapter 3 when, when John the Baptist came on the scene as a cosmic shift in history. The way Luke is setting up the account of Jesus, particularly in this introduction to his earthly ministry, is, is like the coronation of a new king. Or maybe better for our context here in America, the inauguration of a new president. Every four years, January 20th, our country inaugurates the new president, right? This inauguration is full of, of pomp and circumstance, right? Delegates from both sides gather at the Capitol. 
There's much symbolism that, that communicates the, the gravitas of the situation. And if, if we look back over the last couple sections of Luke, I think we could see it play out as an, an inauguration or a, or a coronation of King Jesus. Right? From, from John going out before him, introducing him, announcing his arrival to the world, to his baptism where the father puts a seal of approval upon him, to the genealogy that connects this king to, to all people, to his first act as king, waging war on his cosmic enemy, the devil, out in the wilderness. We see Luke put on display the inauguration of a new king who has ushered in a new upside-down kingdom. And then last week, Pastor Dan helped us see Jesus' first proclamation, his first speech, if you will, as this newly inaugurated king. And in this speech, he quotes Isaiah 61. It's this amazing Old Testament messianic prophecy that said the Messiah would come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight to the blind. He would set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and then what did he do next? He sat down in the synagogue. He looked at all of them and he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Essentially, he says, I am the one that has come to fulfill everything you just heard. I am the one that has come to reverse the curse of sin in this world. And Luke recognizes it's at this point that his audience might just be asking, is this guy for real? There's a sense, friends, we just witnessed Jesus last week in the synagogue hold up a football and say, this is a football moment. Luke's audience is reading this thinking, this can't be real. Who, who is this guy? And in Luke's brilliance, rather than tell Jesus' story in a chronological order, he intentionally places certain events in his gospel out of order to build tension like he did last week and to relieve the tension and to answer the questions that we have like he does this week. So we're left at the end of Luke chapter 4, verse 30, saying to ourselves, is this Jesus really who he says he is. And it's in this passage you just re heard read this morning, Luke 31, Luke 4, 31 through 44, that Luke zeroes in on a single day in the life of Jesus. Remember, not in chronological order, but placed there intentionally for us to be able to answer the question that we came up with last week. Who is this Jesus? Can he really be the one he says he is? And it's through this day in Capernaum that Luke shows us that Jesus authority authenticates he is who he says he is. Hear that again. This is the most important thing Luke wants us to take from this passage this morning. Jesus' authority authenticates he is indeed exactly who he says he is. Just as Vince Lombardi had to go out and produce a winning season after giving the this is a football speech to authenticate his legitimacy, so Luke highlights the authority in which Jesus lives to authenticate who he was. So as we walk through our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus' authority authenticated in three ways. His authority is in his message. His authority is in his method. 
and his authority is in his mission. And all three are going to authenticate that Jesus is who he says he is. The authority of Jesus' message, method, and mission will authenticate who he is and draw us into deeper adoration of our Savior. Let me pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your authoritative word. We come under it this morning. We sit in submission to your word this morning. And so we ask humbly that you would come and reveal yourself to us through your word. That as we look at Jesus' day in Capernaum, you would show us that he is the one who has all authority in heaven on earth. And God, for every one of us, in the ways in which you know we need to, may we bend our knee to King Jesus. May we submit to his authority. And may we stand in awe of the one who came to, to rescue and reverse the curse of sin. We love you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, rule and reign here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We first see Jesus' authority in his message. Look with me at 4, 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Jesus starts his ministry in Capernaum like he does so often in the synagogue. In fact, this day, starts quite similar to the one in Nazareth we looked at last week, doesn't it? He's teaching on the Sabbath. We can imagine he's probably teaching something like he did before. He's picked up an Old Testament scroll and he's declaring the promise from the Old Testament that the Messiah was coming to undo the effects of sin on this world. And just as he had done in the synagogue in Nazareth, he's doing here, but what is the people's response this week? says in verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Mark in his parallel passage in his gospel adds unlike the scribes. His word possessed authority unlike the scribes, Mark said. So the first thing we need to see about the authority of Jesus' message is that there was a, a tangible, a, a noticeable difference in the way he taught. The authority he used when he spoke was different from the scribes and Pharisees of the day. In first century Israel, rabbis would be meticulous in quoting other rabbis and the traditions they brought forth in their teaching. In fact, a sign of good teaching from a rabbi would be that he would say hardly anything original, but rather he would quote a long line of rabbinical thought. Much of the teaching of that day was rabbis quoting and pointing to the lineage of the rabbis they had learned under. But that's not what the crowd saw in Jesus that morning. He spoke as one who had authority. He didn't speak from authority, nor did he speak to gain authority. Jesus spoke as the authority. You have heard it said, Jesus often would say, but truly, truly, I say to you, this is one who spoke with authority. But we have to ask ourselves, where did this authority come from? How could he speak in such a way that, that those hearing the message stood amazed, recognizing something different? Surely, part of it was the content of the message that he was declaring. But we have to remember, in a sense, he wasn't saying anything new. Isaiah 61 
the other Old Testament messianic prophecies that would have been read and taught in the synagogue occurred regularly. And so how was the authority of Jesus' message derived? Where did Jesus' authority come from? It came from his identity. So far in Luke, we've seen all the ways Jesus has identified with those he came to save. Throughout his baptism and genealogy, we see Jesus, fully man, identify with humanity. But we've also seen the divinity of Jesus, haven't we? In the birth accounts, we see a a virgin birth. We see one who is declared to be the son of God. And we even see his divinity on display at the baptism. This thunderous voice from heaven cries out, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Fully man, yet fully God. Jesus is fully man, sympathizing with us in our humanity. And yet he is also fully God. And it's his identity as God, as the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the basis for his authority. John opens his gospel, not with birth accounts like Luke, but by drawing our attention above where Jesus' authority is derived. This is what he says in the first chapter, first verse of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Where is Jesus' authority derived from? How can he say, truly, truly, I say to you, and it carry any weight? It's derived from his identity as God. The word, Jesus Christ, was God. And that's not past tense in the sense he no longer is. That's past tense in the sense that John was showing us that eternally, from before time began, Jesus had existed as God, and he still does today. And notice what else John says about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Where does Jesus get his authority? Why does he have all authority in heaven and on earth, as he says in Matthew 28? Because the Bible says, as God, he made it. I don't know if any of you enjoy board games. We love board games at our house. But there's one game I can't stand playing. Monopoly. You knew. That game has to be responsible for more fistfights, more marriages being broken up, more kids running away than any other game in the history of the world. Every time I play it, I think to myself, who came up with this game? And why did they make the rules this way? But you know what? It doesn't matter what I think. Who am I to say how Monopoly should be played? You know who, who does, though, have every right to say how Monopoly should be played? You know who the one person who has every right to say, you have heard it said that house rules are good, but truly, truly, I say to you, you should play the game according to the rules in the box? 
There's only one with the authority to say that, and it's the creator of Monopoly, Milton Bradley. The creator of that game, albeit the dumbest game, <laughs> holds all authority when it comes to how the game should be played. And friends, the same is true of King Jesus. Jesus' authority is directly derived from the fact that he is God. His identity as God, as the author and creator of the universe, gives him all authority. And those sitting in the Capernaum synagogue recognized that message they were hearing that morning was different than anything else that they had ever heard. They were in God's presence. And notice throughout our passage the, the very words that he says to different people carry the exact same authority, right? Even in his method, which we're gonna look at in depth in a moment, we see the very words of Jesus carry authority. Look down at verse 35 with me. He rebuked the unclean spirit. He spoke a word and something happened. Verse 39, he encounters a high fever and what's he do? He speaks to it. Jesus' authority is manifest. That, that is, it's, it's put on display. It's, it's made known through his word. As God, Jesus speaking is his doing. When Jesus speaks, things happen. This is how God has worked throughout all time. Creating everything from nothing, the power and authority of his word brought about the cosmos. Let there be light, God said. And what happened? There was light. Nothing but light could have come from that statement made by God. And friends, it's no different today. The way of God has not changed. His, his speaking is his doing. His word, word carries the same authority today as it did that day in Capernaum. Jesus' word still carries authority. The Bible's that you hold in your lap carry the same authority that Jesus spoke that day in Capernaum. We can't pass that. We need to marvel at that for a moment. God's speaking is his doing. Jesus speaks to you through his word and things happen. The word of Jesus, the Bible, it still saves. It still convicts. It still calls. And it still works in the lives of those who hear it. As the inaugurated king who is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, the authority of Jesus is seen in his message. But as we've seen, his speaking is his doing. So that means it's not just his message that is authority, it's his method too. So we turn now to the authority of Jesus' method. Look at verse 33 with me, read along. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? 
For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus has left Nazareth. He's made his way down geographically to Capernaum. It's a small town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's preaching. It says with great authority. And all of a sudden, he's interrupted. Mid-sentence, right? Picture a Will Smith, Chris Rock, Oscars moment. The slap around, heard round of the world. Right? In a moment. Interrupted. This is fascinating, though. Think about this with me. Why was a demon-possessed man in the synagogue? It's the last place a demon-possessed man would want to be. How long had he been attending the synagogue? How many sermons had this demon-possessed man heard from rabbis that never angered him like that morning with Jesus? In fact, what was it about that morning with that rabbi and that message that set him off? Luke says the demon cried out. He, he shrieked. He screamed at the top of the lungs is what the, the language connotates. So what we see is it wasn't just the worshipers in the synagogue that recognized the authority of Jesus. The demon did too. And it caused him to shriek, asking what Jesus had to do with the demonic forces that day. And then he also identifies Jesus. He calls him by name, Jesus of Nazareth, and even declares who he is, the Holy One of Israel. So this demon in the midst of Jesus' authority recognizes him exactly for who he is and what he's come to do, and the demon confesses true things about him. We need to pause here for a moment. We need to take that in, right? Especially if, if you've grown up in the church. Maybe, maybe there's some young people here this morning that need to hear this. Right? You've, you've grown up in the church. You've been around Christianity. You know a lot about Jesus. But there's a difference between a confession of truth and a profession of faith. Many people have grown up in the church and been around Christianity, know a lot about Jesus, and they can say all sorts of true things about him. But notice here, even demons do that. How is the knowledge of Jesus? The, the true things you know about him leading you to dependence and faith in him? How are you moving from a, a confession of truth to what we might say is a possession of faith? That's a question I'd pose to you. If you've been around Christianity for some time, but you haven't experienced the transformation and the life-altering joy and peace of King Jesus, how are you moving from a confession of true things to a possession and ownership of real, life-changing, transforming faith? So we see the demon, he says true things about Jesus, but then the king speaks, and he has zero appreciation for the demon saying true things. He rebukes the demon, tells him to be silent, and he calls him out of the man. And what happens next? In his authority, Jesus speaking is his doing. His message is his method. The authority of his word brings about obedience from the demon. That's fascinating. King Jesus, 
in a moment with a word demonstrates that he has authority even over the world of evil forces. His authority authenticates who he is and what he's come to do. What the crowd in the synagogue saw that morning was a, was a microcosm of what Jesus came to do for all eternity. See, it was through this exorcism Jesus was showing he came to destroy the works of the devil. And that didn't go over well with the prince of darkness. Though demon exorcism is, is rarely mentioned in the New Testament after the Gospels, we, we need to recognize that when, when Jesus came on the scene, the kingdom of darkness recognized it was in trouble, recognized it was being threatened, and a war was waged for the, the souls of people. And so we see demon possession throughout the Gospels because the devil and his demonic forces were waging war with God while he was on earth. And yet, we see Jesus regularly liberating those under the forces of evil and darkness because his mission and his ministry was to disarm and defeat the devil and sin and death. Jesus was coming to reverse the curse of the fall to undo the effects of sin. And for that to happen, he had to wage war on the devil. And we get a glimpse of that here. We see a preview of what that means. But ultimately, this war will culminate on the cross where Jesus gives his life and three days later rises from dead and we see his perfect and ultimate authority on full display then. This king who has all authority will demonstrate that authority in the most glorious, most powerful, and most upside-down way, giving his perfect life for his people on the cross. Where the devil sought to, to sow sin and rebellion in the hearts of all people, Jesus stands as the substitute, taking that sin to the cross for all who would turn and place their faith and trust in him as their savior. And so what we see happening here, what those in the synagogue saw happening that morning was a preview of what was to come. This demon exorcism under the authority of Jesus is signaling a reality far beyond what was happening that day in this worship service. Luke wants us to see that, that Jesus' power and his authority and his victory over the devil and his dominion here in this text is simply a foretaste of what's to come. Friends, there will come a day when King Jesus stands in forever and final victory over the devil, and this is a foreshadow of what that will be like. That means we ought to read this and, and long with anticipation of the day this will be a, a, a full reality, a day when the devil and his schemes have, have no effect anymore on God's people. And there was a, some sense of that among, among the crowd that morning. It says they were amazed. It says they couldn't contain themselves. It says they were talking to one another. But what was it that they recognized? Again, they, they recognized he had authority and power over the unclean spirit world through his word. Look at what they say, verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? Not like, what did we just see happen? How did that? What 
is this word. And King Jesus' authority, his speaking, is his doing. His message is his method. And it says that word spread. Twitter feeds were blowing up. Instagram reels of the event were going viral. Hashtag, this king is legit. But his day wasn't over. Look at verse 38 and 39. It says, he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. They appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So after their worship service in the synagogue, that would have been around noon, they had to, they head to Simon Peter's house for a post-church Sabbath meal, right? I'm sure Peter's wife, like all good Baptists, threw something in the crock pot before church, <laughs> just hoping they might be able to have a family over to entertain but on the way, they get word that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And here's what I love about what we see of Jesus and his authority. He doesn't just use his authority cosmically to defeat the devil. We see his authority being used in compassionate ways. And it moves him to use his authority for the good of mother-in-laws too. Jesus loves moms. He loves dads too brothers and sisters, but I love this. I, I love when we get a, a picture of what the compassion of Jesus looks like. Demons and mother-in-laws. My mother-in-law's listening. I'm not comparing the two. <laughs> Strike that. That didn't go as planned. <laughs> so he gets to the house. He goes into the bedroom, and interestingly what happens is there's quite a similarity between the bedside and the synagogue, right? He, he doesn't recite any wacky incantations. He doesn't do any magic sleight of hand. Again, he simply speaks. He opens his mouth, he rebukes the fever, and it obeys. Now, we have to understand that the similarity between the two instances should not cause us to think that Luke is, is trying to communicate that the fever is the result of a demon. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is demonstrating by the power of his word that he not only has authority over the kingdom of darkness, but he also has authority over the kingdom of nature. Again, he's reversing the curse of the fall. He's undoing the effects of sin broadly, though, not specifically. Peter's mother-in-law did not have a fever because she sinned, but she did have a fever because under the curse of sin, this world and our bodies are broken. Under the curse of the fall, we get sick and we get hurt. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's an effect of the fall, and Jesus has come to put an end to it. His authority is authenticating that he's come to reverse the curse of sin, as we see in Peter's mother-in-law. So what we learn about Jesus' authority in the synagogue and at the bedside is that his compassion is for anyone. Jesus' authority is not just cosmic, it's deeply personal, too. And that word is spread. You can imagine how after the church service, people began talking and it caused quite the stir. Look at verses 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This was a marathon day for Jesus. It began before sunup. He taught and preached in the synagogue. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a demon. He was hoping for the post-church nap. 
but when he got home, he needed to rebuke a fever. Now, just when he thought he might be able to, to relax a little bit, people start showing up to Peter's house. No one could come over in the afternoon, though. It was the Sabbath. And so to walk to Peter's house, to try and meet Jesus, to be healed, would constitute work. So they had to wait till the sun went down, marking the end of the Sabbath before they could try and find him. And find him they did. Mark adds in his account that the whole city gathered at Peter's door. The entire town of Capernaum had heard about what happened that morning. And everyone came to get a glimpse of Jesus. And anyone who was sick, it says, came and was healed. Notice Luke says he, he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus would not turn any away. Again, his authority operated with his compassion and he healed and he healed and he healed until everyone left healthy and whole. Imagine, imagine this setting. Scholars believe that Capernaum at the time had about 1,500 in population. 1,500 people gathered around Peter's house. His freshly healed mother-in-law serving those who were there. The disciples, I am sure, watching every move Jesus would make, hanging on his every word. And, and one by one, the lame would walk home. The blind would go home seeing. The leprous clean. Jesus Authority was authenticating. He is the one Isaiah 61 foretold. Can't imagine that scene. And then it wasn't just the sick either. Demon-possessed people were coming. Every one of them too was delivered and the demons were shut up. It says Jesus would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. It's a little confusing to us at first. Why wouldn't Jesus want people to say who he was? They knew true things about him, but they didn't allow those true things to change their heart and mind. Right? Their, their knowledge of Christ did not lead to repentance or faith, and so Jesus would not give them the authority to speak on his behalf. One commentator said, Jesus was not going to allow creatures of hell to speak about heavenly things. Jesus was the one who had authority to speak about the kingdom of God, and in his time, he would extend that authority to others. This wasn't the time and they weren't the spokesmen. But it's this authority to proclaim the kingdom of God that leads us to our third and final point. It's the authority of Jesus' mission. Let's wrap up with this, verse 42. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. He's with people all night. Whole town has come out to him. He's healed everyone, any sickness or disease, anyone afflicted by demons. Jesus has met with them all. His authority over demonic and natural forces has been on display the entire day in Capernaum. And as the sun begins to rise, he sneaks off to a desolate place. He's finally able to escape the craziness. And he gets a bit of a retreat by himself. But what's interesting is that word desolate place is actually the same exact word Luke used earlier when the Spirit led him out to the wilderness. So why? After a marathon day of ministry, would Jesus ever go back out to the wilderness 
to this desolate place. I think it's for the very same reason that the Spirit led him there during the temptation episode. For Jesus, the wilderness is a place of worship. It was a place of silence and solitude where he could be alone with the Father, full of the Spirit, experiencing the intimate communion they had together. The wilderness is where Jesus would get his strength. It's where he would be refreshed and rejuvenated. I think there's something here for us this morning. See, this need for the wilderness, for a desolate place, isn't coming from a place of Jesus' divinity. This need to be in the wilderness is actually coming because of his humanity, because of his likeness to us. Jesus got tired. Jesus got depleted. Jesus felt empty at times. And he's here modeling for us in this moment our need for regular, desolate place, wilderness sessions. Jesus knows the needs of the human heart and soul better than anyone. And what he's showing us is to live a spiritually healthy life, there needs to be times of wilderness refreshment. There needs to be times when we turn everything off, that we go to a desolate place, we sit in silence, and we commune with our God. And how much more important is that, is that now in our noisy, distracting world today than it was in, in Jesus' day? I've read one theologian who, who writes much on this topic. He said he believes the greatest danger to God's people in this generation is distraction. He says, with all our technology, media, and connectedness, humanity is distracting itself to death. But friends, we can push back against that death and push back against the noise and the distraction by allowing the Spirit to lead us into the wilderness more often, to take time in that desolate place. So Jesus is in that desolate place, but all of a sudden they find him, right? Word's gotten out. Continue to spread. They found him. They don't want him to leave, right? Life in Capernaum had never been better. They got a taste of heaven the day before, and they did not want it to end. But, but Jesus has other plans, doesn't he? He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Not to exercise demons. Not to heal the sick and the lame and the blind. I came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Right, so far Jesus' authority been on display through his message and his methods, but now we see his authority through his mission. He says he was sent for one purpose, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's interesting. The crowds want him to stay because they just experienced the night before. Healings, exorcisms, the lame walking, the blind seeing, demon-possessed liberated, but Jesus says the real reason he was sent from heaven was to preach the gospel. Does God, does Jesus care about the physical healing of his people? Absolutely does. Right? Jesus physically exercised a demon from that man in the synagogue. He physically healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. And the reality is Jesus cares deeply about the physical realm. He created us embodied beings. We live in a physical material world that Jesus created and he cares about it. And he stands in authority over it. And so he can rebuke demons and fevers and they obey. But what we see through the authority of Jesus' mission, that he ultimately came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, is that he cares even more about the spiritual health of his people. 
Throughout Jesus' ministry, we're going to see it more and more as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, he continues to physically heal people. But each time, he's becoming more and more concerned with the heart and the spiritual health of those he comes in contact with. The good news of the kingdom of God is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish spiritually, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to preach that in our sin, we are dead to the things of God. That in our fallen state, we do not desire God. We do not pursue God. We're unable to muster up any merit of our own that would please him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Friends, that means that every one of us that is in Christ is as much of a walking miracle as any one of those in Capernaum that day. In Christ, we've been crucified with him. And we've also been raised with him to new life, walking miracles. And this is the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus was sent to proclaim. His mission is to heal and to disarm the devil and raise dead people to life. But most often, that happens spiritually. We need the healing touch of Jesus. But the reality is we need it on our sinful, broken hearts more than we need it on our sinful, broken bodies. But does Jesus still heal people physically today? I believe he does. I believe according to his grace and mercy, Jesus allows doctors and the modern, modern marvels of medicine to bring about healing to his people. But I also believe that according to his divine will, he heals people supernaturally at times. And so we should pray that God would heal those we love and that he would restore them physically if it's his will. But most importantly, we should trust him knowing that his ultimate mission is to preach the good news of the kingdom, which tells us his greatest concern, his greatest concern for us is to heal and restore us spiritually. And we know he will do that all the time. And we also have hope for when our bodies get sick or broken, when that physical healing doesn't come. In God's wisdom, he knows what's best for our heart might be that our bodies fail. There is coming a day when we will experience the kingdom of God in its fullness, when the Bible says he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This is our true and greatest hope. Even more than experiencing physical healing in this temporary world, we know we will live in perfect health, with perfect bodies, with the perfect king for all of eternity. So his mission is to preach the good news of the kingdom so that people may repent of their sin, experience him in his kingdom, and live with him forevermore. That's his mission. What football coach would ever start an NFL season by saying, this is a football? Only one who had the authority to back up such a simple approach. And who in the world 
could possibly claim that they have come to forgive people of their sin, to reconcile them to God and promise eternal, everlasting life. Only one who has authority over all things. Jesus' authority authenticates who he is. Jesus is the Messiah. He's, he's the one who has come to save us, to love us, and to even be our friend. Because of what we saw him do in Capernaum that day over 2,000 years ago, we can trust he is who he says he is. Let me pray. Father, we, we rejoice this morning that in your wisdom, Dr. Luke has told us about that day in Capernaum that we got to see the authority of Jesus manifest over the demonic world, over the world of sickness and disease. And I pray that through the gift of faith, it would authenticate for every one of us, that it would give us surety, confidence, that this Jesus is indeed who he says he is. And would you help us trust him and obey him and follow him all the days of our lives. We love you and we praise you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.